Well, if you have your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 7, and then chapter 8. But if you'd step back and look at chapter 6 for a moment. In verse 15, we read these wonderful words. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid, lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Actually, from start to finish, from the first day that Nehemiah had heard that there was a need in Jerusalem until now when the wall is complete, took him nine months. 52 days to build the wall, but the rest of the time was in preparation, gathering materials, gathering the people together, surveying the walls, the needs that were there. And then in 52 months, he had it completed. Elul is um, near, what is it, the fall months, the end of summer, and the walls uh, go up. Last week, we had our Messianic Leaders Prayer Breakfast. One of the fellows comes all the way down. I think it's from Ventura County. I wanted to say Santa Barbara, but now I'm not sure. I think Ventura County. Uh, Warren Samandel, some of you may know him. And he was an engineer by trade. We were talking about the walls around Jerusalem because a few months before when we had our previous prayer breakfast, I shared some of the things I've shared with you guys from Nehemiah. And he said he became very interested in how uh, long or how the walls came to be erected around the city. He said that for the city walls around Jerusalem, so many feet high, 15 feet high or so, four or five feet thick or six feet thick, I forget exactly the dimensions he gave, but he said that that meant they had to complete at least 200 feet of wall a day for 52 days. That's really significant. Now, if you're a baseball fan, and if you're particularly a Red Sox fan who had the best record in baseball right now. I didn't say much about them last year, but uh, if you're a baseball fan, from home plate to the first base is 90 feet. So you extend that twice, it's about 180 feet, so a little bit further, and you get an idea of how much of that wall they had to complete every day in order to complete it in 52 days. I thought that was pretty interesting as he gave some uh, vision to what they had accomplished. But the wall was complete. Now look at chapter 7. After the wall had been rebuilt, I had set the doors in place. The gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. What's really interesting in chapter 7 now is now that the walls are completed, the work still must go on. You know, we think that Nehemiah was called to build the wall. The wall goes up and he's done. But Nehemiah knows that there is much more that needs to take place in chapter 7. He starts to deal with with, um, delegating authority and responsibilities to the others in control of the city. And what he's dealing with here is, first of all, the issue of revival. That's going to come up in chapter 8. I want to bring us to there this morning. He's going to deal with the issue of repopulating the city. That's going to take place in chapters 10 through 11 or 12 or so. And then the final section of the book of Nehemiah has to do with the rededicating of the walls around the city. What's also interesting in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, the book is written in the third person. From here through chapter 1 through 7, it's all in the first person. I did this, I did this, someone came to me and spoke with me. But in chapters 8 through 12 or so, it's all in the third person. They did this, they did that. 
In chapters 1 to 7, you read about Nehemiah over and over again. In chapters 8 through the end, you only read of him three times. So what's happening is Nehemiah has been called to a task. His primary task was that of building the walls, and now he must turn the work over to others in order to keep the work going that needs to go on. Because the walls were one thing, but the reviving, the repopulating, and the rededicating of the walls, well, that was quite another Now, when he starts out in chapter 7, after the walls are complete, notice what he delegates. Look at this in chapter 7. First of all, he has the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites were appointed. Now, in verse 2, But I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. So now he's beginning to establish certain administrators. One is going to be what I would consider the mayor of Jerusalem. Nehemiah is the governor of this whole area. He's now appointing Hanani. And notice he tells us it is his brother. Now he can't mean that it is his brother. That is to mean that he's a fellow Jew. Because when you look at chapter 7, all the names of the people here are the exact same names that you find in the book of Ezra, which precedes the book of Nehemiah. The list in Ezra is meant to uh, specify who were the Jews that were restored to Jerusalem. Here in the book of Nehemiah, the reason for the names of the people is to demonstrate how they were going to serve in the city of Jerusalem. But they're the same names. So when he says my brother, he doesn't mean my fellow Jew. He means my literal brother. That's interesting to me because in chapter 1, you may remember the individual who had come to Nehemiah to tell him that the walls had been torn down was his brother, Hanani. Now that tells us something. Being his brother, he knew he could get an audience with Nehemiah. Maybe someone else would not have been able to see Nehemiah because of his position as the wine tester, the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. Now we know how he gets there. He's his brother, and so he can have special audience with Nehemiah. He tells Nehemiah the situation. He was a man devoted to the cause. And as a result, Nehemiah places him in charge of the city itself. The other, Hanani, was an individual who was put in charge. We might say he was like the chief of police. He was overseeing the military, the order, the uh, control of the city, and taking care of those that might violate the laws of Jerusalem. And so we read that he put them in charge because they were men of integrity, Individuals they could trust, individuals of character, individuals to whom he knew they were loyal. Remember, he had just come through all kinds of challenges and attacks. Some of those attacks came from without. Some of them came from within. Some of them came from circumstances beyond his control. He needed individuals around him that were ready to shoulder the responsibility and lift up his arms, as it were, like Aaron and Hur. And so who does he choose? These two individuals, men of integrity, for whom God was their primary responsibility. God was their primary love and devotion. And thus, those were the men he entrusted this serious moment and work to. Now, look further in the book of Nehemiah. 
He says the gates of Jerusalem, he gives them these directions. Jerusalem, the gates of them are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own homes. So he wants the people to develop community. He doesn't want outsiders coming in anytime they want. There'll be a certain prescribed time. But there's also a prescribed time where order, community, fellowship, the sense that we are a family here in this city. And therefore, we need to be working together in order to ensure that we do the will of God as he would have us to do it. It wasn't just a matter of rebuilding the walls. It was also a matter of bringing the people together. And that through key individuals who were devoted to God first, people of character second, And were loyal to Nehemiah third. That was the order that Nehemiah looked to. And that was the method he used in order to ensure that the work goes forward. Because there was more that was yet to do much more. He tells us in chapter 7 of the various families. Now there's a whole list of people. We can't name them all. But there are two I do want to name. Look at verse uh, 7. He mentions two individuals at the very front end who are important characters in the books of Nehemiah and the books of Haggai. They are Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest. Yeshua, as I see it here in the New International. These two individuals we'll read about in the books of Haggai and the books of uh, Zechariah uh, as there's more encouragement in the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. But notice what he tells us. Look on verse 39. Notice the priests that are appointed. By priests, he means the descendants of Aaron. These are those that are going to be placed in the highest position among the priesthood in service to God. They're going to be entrusted with the teaching of the law, the leading of worship, and the providing of the sacrifices for atonement and for worship and praise. These are the descendants of Aaron. The closest descendant is going to be the high priest. In the time of David, David took the descendants of Aaron, divided them into 24 courses, and each course had a different time when they would serve in the temple. So for a period of weeks or some prescribed time, these priests divided into 24 courses would then serve in the temple. Notice we don't have a whole lot of people here. We only have the descendants of Jedidiah through the family of Joshua, of Emir, of Pashur, of Harim. Not a whole lot. There weren't many priests that came back to Jerusalem after the exile. According to the Talmud, these four families, they again divided up these members into 24 courses like David did and used the same names of the families that David used. And they became the various uh, groups of priests that would serve at a prescribed time. In the book of Luke, we read of Zechariah, the father of Yochanan the Immerser, John the Baptist. We read of Zechariah. He was one of these priests serving during one of the courses, and he was given the privilege of lighting the altar of incense. In the time of Nehemiah, he's setting up the work of the priesthood first with the priests. Then he tells us of the Levites. We have even fewer Levites. 74 are named or numbered. The Levites were also priests, but they were not of the priestly class as descendants of Aaron. 
They were descendants of other families of the Levites. So their responsibility was to serve the family of Aaron. So when you read of priests and Levites, and often it's been asked of me, what's the difference? Priests were descendants of Aaron. Levites were descendants of other priestly families who served or helped the priests fulfill their responsibility. Then we read of the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. These were all individuals attached to the temple. The the singers were our worship leaders. These were the ones that would guide the Jewish people in worship and in praise. The gatekeepers would open up the gates when the people were to come in for worship and to close them when the the temple needed to be repaired or needed to be taken care of. The temple servants were servants that served wherever in the temple the priests, the Levites, the singers, or the gatekeepers might need them. Notice the delegation of authority. Everyone is getting involved. Everyone has a role. Everyone has a purpose. And Nehemiah sees to it that everyone is made aware of that role and purpose and given an opportunity to utilize their gifts and their calling in the overarching purpose of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Notice later we're told of the descendants of the servants of Solomon, the temple servants of the descendants of the servants of Solomon. And then you have a number of others from the priests. But notice this. Then there were those who searched, verse 64, those who searched for their family records, but they couldn't find them. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Now, the term unclean isn't meant to be derogatory. It only means that they can't serve as priests because we cannot justify their lineage as priests. Not that there was something immoral about them, something wrong about them, but it was something inappropriate because of their lack of evidence that they truly were priests. But it was only temporary. Look at verse 65. The governor therefore ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there would be a priest, the high priest, who would minister with the Urim and Thummim. And those were articles that were on the high priest's breastplate that had the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Urim and Thummim, we're not really sure what they are, whether they were sticks that were placed behind the breastplate, whether they were stones that were in his hands, but it was used for the drawing of lots. And so what Nehemiah is saying is that when the high priest is set up, ready to serve and has all of his vestments, then he will make a determination using the umen and thumen in order to determine whether or not they ought to serve or whether they're excluded because of their lack of records. It's interesting how he's getting all of this in order. And last but not least, he makes sure that the finances are in place to keep the city running. Look at verse 66. The whole company numbered so many names. And then some of the heads of the families, verse 7, contributed to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 drachmas of gold. Now, Sam is a good mathematician, and Dan knows precious metals. Now, according to my note on the New International Version, 1,000 drachmas of gold was equivalent to 19 pounds of gold. So I don't know how much gold is going for an ounce. What is it? $1,640, Sam, and that's one ounce, so we need to multiply that by 16, gives us one pound, and we need to multiply that by 19. So, (laughs) 
So I don't know, rough estimate, what are we talking about? Billions, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars right there in today's market. But that's just one person. Then there were 50 bowls and 530 garments. Some of the hands of families gave to the treasury for the work 20,000 drachmas of gold. That is 375 pounds of gold. Some gave 2,200 minas of silver. And we're told that that would be what? That's about one and one-third tons of silver. So Nehemiah cannot do this work just in terms of putting people in place. There is a need of financial undergirding of the work. And the people gave extremely, extremely generously to that work. Then the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, along with certain other people, the rest of the Israelites, settled in their towns. Now, when you look at chapter 8, now that the city is in place, now that the people are delegated, now that the finances are there, Nehemiah steps back. And he delegates responsibility to others. And the first thing he's concerned about, and this is what I want to share in the next few moments, is the reviving of the people's spirit and relationship to God. Nehemiah knows the work is not complete. Now, I've recently been reading about William Wilberforce. Everybody familiar with William Wilberforce? Because he's the individual in 1807, ended slavery in the British Empire. Now, what's interesting about Wilberforce In 1880, when he was 21 years old, he was elected to the House of Commons. Now, I don't understand the difference between the House of Lords, House of Commons, Parliament in England. So you'll have to correct me where I'm getting things confused. But he was from the county of Hull, 21 years old, elected to be the representative, parliament member in the House of Commons, representing that county. He comes to know the Lord in 1885. He's 26 years old. As a believer, he was led to faith by his schoolmaster, Isaac Milner. His schoolmaster had taught him, had trained him, educated him. He was a believer And over the years, he had stayed in contact with him. And now he came to be convinced of the truths that Yeshua, he would say Jesus, is the Messiah of Israel. He became very good friends with John Newton, the one who wrote Amazing Grace. And of course, the one who is a slave trader, a slave, and then an abolitionist to end slavery in the British Empire. His first bill at 26 years old in 1885-86 or so, that he brings to the floor of the House of Commons is a bill to discuss, discuss slavery. The bill passes for discussion. A year later, the bill comes up. It's voted down. We're not discussing this. It's because the wealthier among the House of Commons, the wealthier communities that were being represented did not want to lose their slaves because they were afraid it would impact on their lifestyle 
and on their finances. But that wouldn't stop Wilberforce. He submits the bill in 1888, 1889, 1788, 1790, 1791, And it passes. When word gets to him, he's now 40-something years old. Many people have died who have supported him. Many people have grown old alongside of him. When he hears that it has been passed and slavery is going to end, the first thing he does is goes to his closest friend, Henry Thornton. He knocks on his door and he says, Henry, I just received word that our bill has passed, slavery will now end. Henry Thornton says, that's marvelous. And Wilberforce says, Henry, what should we abolish next? And I thought, that's Nehemiah. He builds the walls. What do we do now? The people must be revitalized. We look at Beth Ariel 30 years later. What do we do Now, that's what Wilberforce was looking forward to. He wasn't just looking forward to the passage of the bill. He was looking forward to how God might use him again and how God would be honored by his devotion in his position in the House of Commons, Lords, etc. And how he would do something wonderful for a vast number of human people who are enslaved simply because the color of their skin? That is a big question, isn't it? What is in store for tomorrow? And what has been in store for today? So Wilberforce was one who is not finished yet. That is how we, here at Beth Ariel, or wherever any believer might be gathered, must look at their life in faith. It is not over till it's over. And we are called not to serve God for 5, 10, 15 years of our life, but for our entire life from beginning to end. And when we can no longer, I'll say for myself, when I can no longer preach the word, because my voice is gone, when I can no longer teach the word, because my mind is a fog, There is still one thing I can continue to do on my deathbed to the end of my days, and that is to pray that God's will might continue to be done to those who follow in my steps. That's the way all of us should be thinking. Like Wilberforce, what do we abolish next? What do we tackle next? Where do we go from here? For this is not the end. It is, in another sense, only the beginning. I'm reminded of John Wesley's message on Joshua chapter 1, where it says, Moses, my servant, is dead. And Nehemiah said, God buries, or I should say, Jonathan Wesley said, God buries his servants and goes on with the work. 
What he was telling Joshua is none of us is necessary for the work of God. Moses was not necessary. Peter was not necessary. Paul was not necessary. If they failed, God would raise up another. That's what Mordecai told Esther. Help will come from another place. But our responsibility is to do as the Lord guides, leads, instructs, and calls. Without fear or without compromise. And we have an incredible job to do that is remarkably unfinished here in Los Angeles. Over half a million Jewish people who need to hear the gospel. Fortunately, we're not the only ones with that responsibility. There are thousands upon thousands of churches here, believers here, and other Messianic congregations who have the very same responsibility you and I have. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. It is not our own responsibility. It is every believer's responsibility. We, however, have a unique role to play in that responsibility. And that is to make the good news as palatable for Jewish people as we possibly can without excluding those who are not Jewish, that they might find peace, love, and acceptance in God's family as well. That is not just our mandate, that's the churches out there's mandate as well. For Paul does not say the gospel is the power of God into salvation to the Jew first, only for Messianic congregations. He says that is so for everyone. And whether they take it seriously or not, we must and we will. And so therefore we need to be aware of the great issues that are afoot in the present day and age and moment in which we live. It isn't about having the best programs, although we don't want to have the worst. It isn't about having the best worship or teaching we can muster, but it certainly doesn't mean we want to provide the worst. But it is about coordinating, organizing who we are as a body, like Nehemiah did with his people, And building the wall that God has us to construct. Maybe wall is a bad image because it has the image of keeping out. But what I'm drawing our attention to is the need to build. And the need to see that what is built is worthy of the name of God. And that will require that we do like Nehemiah. Maybe not exactly like him but much like him. And it begins, first of all, with what Nehemiah leads in chapter 8. Notice the first time Ezra appears, the priest of Israel. And now you don't read about Nehemiah at all. It's all in the hands of Ezra. And what does Ezra do? The first thing he does is he has a stage built so that everyone can see him. More importantly, it is not he that he hopes they see, but what he's holding in his hand. It is the word of God. He raises it up for everyone to see. That is why in the synagogue, I know some people get kind of weirded out when we take the Torah scroll out on occasion and march it through the aisles and people show devotion by touching the Bible to it or whatever it might be. But this comes from Ezra's example. 
The point is, God's word is his word to us. It isn't Charles Dickens. It isn't Faulkner. It isn't Mark Twain. It's God who is the author. And therefore, it must be raised up and we can't raise it high enough. And we can't show enough devotion to it. And we can't show enough obedience to its instructions. It is God's word. And so Ezra raises it up for all the people to see. What do the people do? Do they stay seated? Do they close their eyes? They stand in recognition that this is a manifestation of the living God in our midst. The Bible is not God. We're not to worship pages in a Bible. But we are to honor the author whose thoughts and revelation is inscribed therein. And nowhere else. It is here that God's word is given. So Nehemiah raises it up. In the Scottish churches, you know how the church services begin? The beetle walks in with the Bible. Everyone stands. He brings it to the front, places it on the platform, and then the pastor is escorted in for he, like Ezra, is going to be the expositor of it. He takes his seat behind the word, and only then can everyone sit. Now, I'm not advocating we should do this, but it tells us the great magnitude, respect that they had for God's word. If we're going to rebuild walls, if we're going to make a difference here in L.A., it will only be because we are devoted to God's teaching and his word. And that means doing what he tells us to do, as well as enjoying how it ministers to our hearts and to our souls. And so Nehemiah, first of all, raises the scripture. The second thing he does is he prays. It says that he gives praise to God. We're not told the content of his prayer, unfortunately. But we know what the people did. They stood up with hands raised and they praised God along with him. Only after their prayer and the honoring of God's word does Nehemiah begin to read the word. He has 13 priests flanking him on both sides, six on one, seven on the other. As he begins to read, they fan out among the crowd. They serve to translate what he was saying because many people among Israel didn't read Hebrew at that time, but rather Aramaic. As Ezra began to read the word, these Levites intermingled with the crowd begin to teach its meaning, making it clear. And as they understood the word, it moved their hearts in dramatic ways. The scripture tells us they cried and cried and cried and cried and mourned and wept. So much so that Nehemiah had to tell them, stop crying. He had to stop the service. It was so emotionally debilitating. Nehemiah didn't, Ezra didn't do anything. But read God's word. That's how much they wanted to hear it. And that's how much they wanted to embrace it. Just the reading of the word brought them to their knees. They realized how they had failed to live up to the word. And they were sorrowful for the way they had lived their lives. 
Nehemiah tells them the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is a time of celebration. Go home. Ezra's telling him, go home and celebrate. The next day, the heads of families come back to learn from Ezra. And what they learn is they had not observed the Feast of Tabernacles. And all these years, they hadn't observed it. And so now they put into practice God's word, obeying the scripture that tells them to celebrate this festival as often as they were supposed to celebrate it for the seven or eight days. And they do just that. The reason why Israel becomes so significant after Nehemiah, the effects of what happens here lives beyond what Yeshua's ministry involved. The reason why Jewish people were doing what they were doing in the synagogues of Yeshua's day was because of what Ezra and Nehemiah had brought to the people here some 500 or 400 years before his ministry. The first thing that it involved was devotion to God as exhibited by obedience to his word. And together as a family of people, that's what they devoted themselves to. And God blessed. God showed up. And the people experienced a revival and restoration like they've never known. It isn't about emotionalism. It isn't about the right songs or the right length of songs. It isn't about the style of preaching or articulating of God's word. It's about the human heart and the value it sees in the word of God. And if our hearts are wrong, And if our devotion to God's word is lax, we ought not to think God would do anything for us or through us. It starts with a revival in the heart that reveals our failings, that drives us to our knees before him. And in being driven to our knees before him, we ask for his mercy and we act in accordance with with his word. That's the challenge Nehemiah's book brings to my heart. That's the challenge it ought to bring to all of our hearts. That's the challenge it ought to bring to the world of believers. For it does not seem that we're making much of a dent or an impact very much anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. But I certainly am not happy about that. And so I pray that we might learn from Nehemiah that it starts with his word, God's word. It starts with our hearts. And it starts with an evaluation of who are we really? And are we ready to follow him as he leads us and as he guides us? Well, let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your love and faithfulness to us. We thank you for this deep challenge that your word brings to us. It led the people to mourn, but it didn't leave them there. For your word then raises us up to places of great heights. But it starts 
with a humility and a humbleness before you. Help us to do that, that we might vessels fit for your service, that we might be vessels that can be used by your glorious powers, that we would be individuals who manifest the very presence of Messiah in our midst. All of us, Lord, believers around the globe, all of us are one in you. So help us, Father, to manifest that oneness. Help us, Father, to manifest that devotion. Help us, Father, to manifest that love for you. For you have loved us so greatly and so deeply. For it's in Messiah's name we pray. Amen.